because we have been covering everything from 90 AD, how John got to be on the Lord's Day, to be seeing everything he's been seeing, and then to see the last 2,000 years of human history unfold from a standpoint that hasn't even happened yet in our day and age. And he's seeing it all and he's writing. He's fulfilling his commission to write. Revelation 2 and 3, we see church history. Went through 90 AD to 200 AD. What was the name of that church period? Ephesus. Ephesus. Anybody know and remember what Ephesus means? It's been a while since I quizzed you guys on the meaning of the church periods. Ephesus means fully purpose. Fully committed, fully purpose. That's right. And in each and every single one of these church periods, Satan had a predominant attack method. What was it for Ephesus? Thank you. It was on the board. Heresy. He started attacking them by using words, phrases, concepts that aren't found anywhere in the Bible. And some people gave in. Most stood fast, but that little bit, that little drop of poison in a bucket of water, it's still enough to kill you. Got to be careful with that. And then you move on to 200 to 325 AD, where we talked about what church period was it? Smyrna. And what does Smyrna mean? Anybody remember that one? Myrrh. Which is a root, literally, a root for bitterness. It literally means it was a bitter herb that they used for embalming purposes. And boy, oh boy, was that synonymous with death. We looked at all of the martyrs and all of the, the crushing, bitter persecution that they experienced. Because, again, that was part of the enemy's plan. If he couldn't get them through doctrine, he was going to try to get them in their flesh. He's going to try to hurt them physically to try to scare them into running away. But what we saw was incredible. The more the church was persecuted, the more it grew. For purposes that I won't belabor, but again, this picture says a lot. Look at everybody who is standing around watching these things being done in the name of a God. Some even say that it was done in the name of our God, but clearly... Our God, if you read the Bible, would never condone things like this. But they would watch as Christians would be going to their death to, to pay a horrible price for a crime that they didn't commit other than just possessing a copy of the Scriptures. And as a result of that, the onlookers would see, wait a second, she's not recanting of her faith? She's not giving in? She's not compromising? And the church started to grow. And it came to the last two weeks where we looked at Pergamos, and we saw that the enemy had a new tactic, that if you can't beat them, what? Join. join them. So he joined himself to the church by taking pagan Rome, taking all of their pagan practices and cultic rituals and merging it, marrying it, if you will, with church practices. And that's where you start to see the church give in more where they completely just locked arms and locked shields with pagan Rome. They compromised. And I, I kind of mentioned to you guys, you know, when we go through this in the adult class, you know, there's three applications to all of Scripture. What are they again? There's a doctrinal application of it, which is a, like a teaching. What is the teaching behind this passage? What's another one? Devotional. Devotional. How does this apply to me today? What can I gain from this practical book in my life that's going to help me right now? And what's the last one? Historical. historical. These things actually happened, they were actually written, and they took place at a historical time, physically speaking. 
And when it comes to church history, when we teach this in our adult class, it's predominantly from the perspective of a, a doctrinal standpoint of looking just at these seven periods. And I told you guys, I really wanted to kind of emphasize the devotional aspect of all of this. How does this apply to us today? Because really, you know what? It does matter that we know what we believe and why we believe. And it does matter that, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? 2 Timothy 3.12 And this world system is constantly trying to get us to compromise, to give in to everything that Satan has to offer, whether it be riches, whether it be notoriety, whether it be popularity, reputation, fill in the blank, acceptance. There's all of these things that Satan is trying to get us to. And I'm like, man, you know what? Even if we are sound in our doctrine, we're never going to forsake this book. We're never going to forsake the teachings that we get from our pastors, from our disciples, from our parents in some cases. Even if that's not the case, you know, Satan will still try to attack you with heresy. Can anybody just give me, put in your own words, what does heresy mean? Put it in your own words. Someone says something, and I'm like, that's heresy. James. Um, teaching something that isn't Yeah. You know what? On the most fundamental, elemental approach that we might experience this in our lives, believing something about yourself, that's not true. But believing that it is. Maybe you get in your head that, you know, I'm not liked, I'm not accepted. Oh, man, I screwed up again. Why would God ever want to use me? Why would God ever want to have a relationship with me when I keep doing the same thing, the same sin and the weights that easily beset me? I am just of no good. What am I even doing here? Why do I even try and bother getting up out of bed in the morning? You might believe that and think that about yourself, but here's the thing, it's not true. Jesus Christ says, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to Paul, rather, in Ephesians 1, I think it's verse 6, that we are accepted into the Beloved. If you're in here tonight and you know Christ and you have a relationship with Him, you are accepted into the Beloved, into the fellowship of believers, and accepted by Him. You mean the world to Him. He died on the cross for you. To believe things like that about yourself... Is a complete lie. It's heresy. But here's the thing. If we don't nip that thought in the bud, if we don't mortify those thoughts, man, eventually it's going to work itself out into persecution. And persecution, that has many different ways of going about it. We often think that it has to do with externally. People making fun of you because you carry your Bible to school. People making fun of you when they see you witnessing or serving at the church or not doing things that your friends are doing because of your testimony and your love for Christ. We think of that usually when it comes to persecution in today's day and age. But again, persecution has many forms, like internally. Internally, the pressure of, okay, well, I'm already thinking this about myself. I'm no good. There's no way that God can use me. You know what? What's the point of me even getting up and going to church today? What's the point of me even getting in my Bible? What's the point of even trying to walk godly? You know what? I'm just going to surrender. I'm just going to give in. I'm just going to compromise. Just for today. I'll just go to church next week. And the thing that you don't realize is that next week turns into two weeks, and two weeks turns into three weeks. And then just like the church in Pergamos, 325 to 500 AD, they completely compromised with this world, and they were toast. 
This is the fight that you and I face literally every single day. The attacks that Satan used in church history, it's still his mode in operation today. Every single day, it starts at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7. It starts right here with the mind. That's the battleground. If you don't nip those thoughts in the bud, this is coming because Satan's not going to stop. We're going to see that tonight. But how does it start? It doesn't just start with one thought. There's something that happens before any of this begins. Look with me. Hebrews 2.1. This is a verse, honestly. It's one of those obscure verses. You don't really hear it quoted that often, but boy, oh boy, I'm telling you guys what. Memorize this. Memorize this as soon as possible. Follow along with me. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them, what? It's called a slow fade. It's called a drift. The things that you think you know about the Bible, take the more earnest heed to it, lest at any time you let them slip. You know, it's like an airplane, for example. I don't know if you guys have ever, you know, looked into a cockpit or know what goes into just flying in general, but you realize that if a pilot is flying and he takes that steering wheel and he just turns it one little notch, just one notch, over time, that plane will end up in a completely and utterly different destination than where it intended to. It's the same thing with us. We make one little drift from what we know to be true, from what the Word of God tells us, and ultimately, we're going to end up veering off way into a different destination than when we ever intended to go. That's what we're learning with church history. And that's what we learn with ourselves when we're honest. That's why, do you see the heartbeat behind when Timothy, or when Paul's writing to Timothy and he tells him, hold fast the form of sound words. Hold fast to these things, these promises, these precious promises that you know to be true. These promises that we're going over on Sunday mornings. Hold fast to these things, lest at any time you should let them slip. And then you start drifting into compromise with the world. We see it happen with history. Again, the thing I mentioned night one when we started talking about church history. You know the number one thing that people learn from history? Is that mankind does not learn anything from history. Because it keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. The sin you continue to keep finding yourself in is because we won't deal with it and we won't learn from it. And so we have a repeating history of partaking in it. That's how it happens every single time. And when it starts here, when we see this start happening in our life, boy, is Satan on cruise control from there on out. That's what tonight's all about. Turn over to Revelation chapter 2. As we look at the fourth period of church history, Thyatira. And we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. We're not going to read the passage first. We're actually going to go through the study sheet and read the passage as we go through the study sheet. 
This is one of the longer letters that John writes to this church. And boy, did they need to hear everything he had to say. But on your outline, to kick things off in the introduction, we always look at the definition of what the name means. And Thyatira means, as it's on there on your outline, odor of affliction. It has the connotation of a continual sacrifice. Now, when you hear that phrase, what does your mind automatically go to? A continual sacrifice. And see who reads their Old Testament on a regular basis. Don't worry, I didn't really either when I was in high school. The Old Testament law. What the priest was to be doing continually for the sins of the nation of Israel. There was always an animal burnt offering. There was always a sacrifice. And it was Israel's faith and trust in what God said that that blood sacrifice of that animal would cleanse the nation from their sin. See, salvation has always been the same. It's faith in what God had to say through the blood of a, of a spotless lamb. But what they did in Israel in the Old Testament is they would take that lamb and they would burn it. And the burning would be just an absolute consuming of that sin. It was a consuming that God, when He takes care of our sin, He takes care of it and wipes it out permanently. That's what He did on the cross for us. We saw that last week with Hebrews chapter 10. But think about it. Put yourself in their position. Imagine you're in Israel and you see this smoke billowing and you see this fire from all of these animals that have been sacrificed. Anybody ever smelled a burning carcass before? Yes. Pig roast? Yes. Anything else? Does it smell the greatest? <laughs> Three weeks ago, there was a smell in my basement. <laughs> Some of you may have heard the story. I've been waiting for the right time to share it and I think this is now... We couldn't figure it out. We're like, man, that's a kind of a weird, funky smell. You think it's because the pipes, maybe they're backed up? I don't know. Do we call it Tim Finley? No, we'll figure it out. Two days later, three days later, it goes by and the smell just keeps getting worse. We're about to go out into the garage. And then it dawns on me, almost like in horror movie fashion. I stop and I just turn very slowly and I look. As I come face to face with what I think it is, I open up the lid to my freezer and go, No! No exaggeration. And then Heather, who's upstairs, thinks that it has to do with the kids, and so she comes running down and sees what I see, and she goes, No! I had to take the mic off for those of you listening on podcast. Hopefully it didn't deafen you, and hopefully you're not in a car crash. <laughs> For some reason, somehow, my meat freezer became unplugged for five days, and I lost a deer and a half in my freezer. On top of that, the blood melting from all of that deer meat is at the bottom of my freezer and then seeps down onto my carpet. <laughs> That's the deer being dogged, yeah. Yeah. carpet in your garage? No, I was going out to my garage. It was in my basement. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. Defeated. Dare I say, didn't want to do this anymore. But, but I'll tell you what. It took us days before we could get that smell out of our nostrils. Even when we finally cleaned the carpet down, 
Even when we finally cleaned the carpet and finally got it out, there's still remnants of it like in a thought memory. You guys ever have that, a thought memory? Where you're like, I can still smell it. <laughs> you know what? Uh, on a not-so-funny note, there was a period, I've told you guys my testimony before, how uh, I believe I got saved going into my eighth grade year, but then I wasn't walking with God for two years after that. Still going to church every Sunday, still coming to youth group, but somebody else completely different the other six days of the week. And during that time, eighth and ninth grade year, I remember I was... Uh, I think 15 years old when I had my first taste of liquor. It was five shots of Jose Cuervo tequila. <laughs> that was 2002. I was 15. To this day, I remember the taste of what it's like. And I want to throw up every single time I think about it. That's what sin is like. That smell, that thought memory, it's there continually reminding you. And that's what it was like in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel when they would burn up those animals. That smell would remind them of their sin and what God was doing for it. This is different though. This continual sacrifice is of a completely different kind. Well, I'll get to that. I don't want to jump ahead. But keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it. It's an odor of affliction, it's called. Second bullet point in your outline. This is the era of scriptural heresy and human atrocities by Papal Rome. See, it was pagan Rome. But as we saw in the last two weeks, they formed their own church. And we talked about the formation of the Roman Catholic Church. Again, if you weren't here the last couple weeks, definitely check those messages out. We go through all of the building blocks of how we get there. We don't have the time to review it tonight. And now we come to Satan's attack method for this one. Because again, once we start drifting, we, stop, we start letting the things that we know slip. We start believing things that aren't true. We start feeling the pressure within and without to conform, to be more like the world and be more like society. And eventually we will give in if we don't rectify it. God over and over again said, repent. If this church repents, it'll be okay. But they didn't. Now, Satan's attack method, advance. You give Satan an inch, he's going to take a yard. You crack the door open a little bit, he's going to break it down. That's what he does. I'm telling you guys, I've seen this again and again with people who are no longer in our youth group, with people who are no longer <clears throat> youth ministry. It's like a curse word to me. With people who are no longer in our church, they let things go. They let things start to slip. They start believing things that aren't true. The pressure comes from within, and then they eventually give in, and then Satan just takes over their life. How does he do that? <laughs> Wash, rinse, repeat. He furthers the heresy, furthers the persecution, and furthers the compromise. Now you start believing things even more so that aren't true about you. The pressure keeps turning up even hotter to make you sure that you don't go back to Christ after you've already compromised with the world. 
In the second checkmark, he advances forward all in the name of Jesus and Christianity. See, before, pagan Rome was killing all of the Christians because they wouldn't conform to the government. Now that the government and the church are married together, now papal Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, can now persecute and do everything they were doing to the nonconformists, but they're doing it all in the name of God. So in Pergamos, we saw the church married the world and it created the, and birthed this kind of counterfeit church. In Thyatira, we're going to see that this counterfeit church married the political system and created what is known in the history books as the Holy Roman Empire. The church and the state are officially married together and have become one. And you want to mark this down because this is crucial. Once your religion becomes a state religion, now you, as the religious leader in hierarchy, you now control the armies. And if you control the armies, when every general in your country goes to your church, you now control their standing with God. Their entire internal destiny is now dependent upon what you tell them to do in the name of God. Do you see how easy it was for literally, during this time in history, Rome to have conquered all of the known world? What general is going to stand up against the Pope or against the king? Or in some cases, they were one and the same. What general is going to stand up against him when that man controls your eternal destiny? Oh, well, I better do what he says. Otherwise, ugh, when I die, I'm going to hell. Do you see why Jesus twice already in our study has warned against Nicolaitans, conquerors of the common people? That is what it breeds. That kind of domination got to be careful with that. You know, one of the things we're going to look at eventually as we get past church history in the coming weeks and we go on to the rest of the book of Revelation, we're going to see that, oh, this church, rather I should say this religious system, because she's going to change her clothes a bit. I'll talk about that later. This religious system, it's going to play a huge role during the end times and the tribulation period when the church is raptured out of here. Huge role. You can read about it in Revelation 17 and 18. But one of the things that's interesting about that, and we see it happen all throughout church history, what's going on, Cameron? A new version. <laughs> what's happening, Cam? <laughs> Why do you have pop-ups? Hey! No! That wasn't what I wanted. Never mind. I didn't have the reference on the, on the PowerPoint. I'm yelling at Cam and he didn't even do it. Turn over Revelation 17, 18. Your computer is jacked up though, Cam, if you want to come up here while we're looking at this. Revelation 17, 18. Can I get a reader for that? So keep in mind what we're talking about. When they started propagating their version of a twisted gospel all throughout Asia Minor and Europe. 
Look what happens in verse 18. I added a reader. Sammy. And the woman which thou She's known as a woman, this religious system, this false religious system, and she has a great city, Rome, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Again, when your religion becomes a state religion and you control the generals, you control the kings, you control the princes, you control the rest of the world. You can even see this happening. For those of you who are politically savvy and historically savvy now, you see this happen in other countries. To a degree here, too. All right. Flip back to Revelation chapter 2. All right. The commendation. Yes, believe it or not, Jesus Christ had something good to say about this church. But he kicks things off with this letter, again, the introduction. Look at verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, not the Son of Semiramis, not the Son of Mary, not the Son of any other person who was being venerated above Jesus Christ. No, the Son of God. As they've mentioned, every single church period... Whenever God starts these letters out, He's always reminding the church of something they needed to know, something they needed to be reminded during this time in history. The Son of God, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire. Fire consumes everything. We already talked about that. Anything that fire touches, it consumes. Fire misses nothing. You know what's interesting about fire? It can bring you great comfort or it can bring you great fear. Depends on your circumstance. The eyes of God, the all-seeing, all-consuming eyes of God, can he bring you great comfort or great fear? Great comfort. God sees my position. He knows what I'm going through right now. Even though it seems like nobody else on this planet knows what I'm going through. Even after I talk with people, I thought they'd understand me, but they don't get me. He knows. And the fact that He knows what I've been through because He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, that brings me great comfort. It's like a warming fire. Or, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro... Beholding everything, his eyes miss not a beat. He sees everything, even when other people don't see what we're doing or what we're thinking or what we're saying or what we're like at school versus when we're here at church. His eyes see it all. Great fear. He's letting people know, I know what's going on during this time in history. Other people might be fooled. Other people might try to lie about it in the books in the future. But I'm going to give you guys a little insight as to what's going on here. It's what he's saying. Eyes is a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. You trace that word brass throughout Scripture, implementing some of the tools and the tricks we looked at this past Sunday, and you'll find brass. It's a picture, and it's a type of judgment. His feet, when he comes back here, boy, oh boy, you study out the book of Isaiah, you're going to see, specifically chapter 64, he is going to tread the wine press all right when he makes his return in Revelation 19. Judgment. In other words, the description that Jesus Christ is giving of himself here is that of a mighty warrior. A mighty warrior who is not happy about what is going on with his bride. 
verse 19. I know thy works and charity. They were a charitable church. And service they served. And faith and thy patience and thy works. He mentions works twice. And check out what he says. He says, and the last to be more than the first. Even after all of their charity, all of their service, all of their faith, their works are what got better and better. You're like, but wait a second. I don't see how it is after they compromised. How is it that that happened? Well, you see, all throughout Scripture, no matter how bad things got, and no matter how bad things are getting right now in Christianity today, God always has a small faithful remnant who did not bow the knee to the enemy. 1 Kings. Later, write this down. Write down 1 Kings chapter 19. Remember Elijah? He just got done standing up on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. And he says, hey, if your God be God, all right. But if the Lord be God, let's rock. Rough paraphrase. Just read the passage later. And all the prophets of Baal, they get consumed with fire. And Elijah, he has this great victory in the Lord, just like we have great victories in our life sometimes, whether it be a friend coming to know the Lord, whether it be a new discipleship relationship that just started. We have all these great victories, and then what comes immediately after? What's it like when you get back from camp? Sleep. <laughs> opposition. Which can be a form of. Opposition. Elijah has this great victory with God, and then Jezebel, mark that name down, comes after him and says, all right, I'm going to come get you. And Elijah, he starts wigging out. He immediately starts freaking out about everything. He gets very, very caught up in the emotions of his decisions and what's going on. And God, in a very still, small voice, says, hey, don't wig out. You're not the only one. It feels like you're the only one right now, but you're not. I have 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. He tells him that. Same thing here. Even though the Holy Roman Empire is going all throughout history and they're just getting more and more false converts, there's still a small faithful remnant who didn't bow the knee to Rome. And these guys are the faithful ones. These are the guys who their works got better as they continue to walk faithfully with God. And it should be the same thing with us. Our works should get better as we grow with Him. But unfortunately, that's the only thing he has to say positive about this church period. We'll learn more about these guys at the end of tonight. But now we get to the condemnation. The first bullet point in your outline, they suffered or allowed, it means they, they, they tolerated, that woman, Jezebel. Hmm. There's a theme tonight. Look at verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess. Remember, Satan is a great counterfeiter. He will make you think that he is on your side. His ministers in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 transform themselves as ministers of light to make it seem as though they are on your side, to make it seem as though they believe the same things that you and I do. It happens. She called herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to what? Commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. We talked about that last week. 
So on your outline here, we just saw she calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and seduces God's servants and commits fornication to, and eats things sacrificed to idols. Remember last week how we ended looking at the formation of this new doctrine of this corrupt church called the Eucharist? It was the mass ceremony. Remember what I talked about with that? It was communion. But what did I tell you guys as we looked at it? What is it they say why we need communion every single week? Who said that? Louder. Mm -hmm. Because you need to eat communion to pay the price for your sins that you just committed since the last time you took communion. And they teach that every single time you take it, it becomes, it literally transubstantiates, transformation of a substance, into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. I've studied out their doctrine. I've looked at their catechisms. They make no bones about this. This is what they believe. Every time that you take that, every time that it transforms, they're saying that it is literally the offering of Christ as payment for your sins is being sacrificed continually. What does Thyatira mean again? Oh, continual sacrifice. And God says it brings an odor of uh, affliction. It's not a good odor. Because Jesus Christ is being crucified afresh, but He died once as payment for the price of all sin for all of time, and everyone who calls upon Him to save them, your sins have been completely paid for as far as east is from the west and on the deepest bottom of the ocean floor. Bible, not man. He doesn't need to be sacrificed and crucified afresh again and again and again. Number three, look at verse 21. And I gave her space to what? Repent of her fornication. And she repented not. Number three, she was given space to repent, but refused. The bullet point under that. You see, there were those who held the doctrine of Balaam. We saw that last two weeks. But now it's called Jezebel. Goes by a different name. She changed her clothes now. It's the thing about a harlot. A harlot's always changing its clothes to try to seduce more people. Because eventually, the people that she can't get, well, she has to change up her tactics in order to get new people. Just like a harlot does. Has to change her tactics. It was Balaam, now it goes by Jezebel. It was pagan Rome, and now it's the Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Empire. But now they are Jezebel, teaching and seducing God's people into the same doctrine. Second bullet point. In the Old Testament, Satan used the literal Jezebel to teach and seduce Israel away from God to worship Baal. I think we can do it. Turn over to Judges 17. Is anybody starting to get petrified whenever I say something like that? I think we can get this done before tonight. This is one of those passages... You know, I've tried every single week to show you Old Testament. This isn't just some modern history thing. No, this type of church, it's been all throughout human history, going back to the Tower of Babel, really going back to the Garden of Eden. And the Tower of Babel, as we saw in Ezekiel 8 with 
Tammuz and the women weeping for Tammuz and then Jeremiah 44 with the Queen of Heaven. Judges 17. All right. I need a reader for verses 1 to 3. Carson, I need a reader for verses 4 to 6. Kendall, I need a reader for 7 to 9. Sam, and I'm going to take 10 to 13. All right. Carson, go ahead. Again, as always, I'm going to interrupt where things need to be said. Judges 17, right? Correct. And there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursedst, and spakest of also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. <laughs> what? What? The guy stole from his mom and says, Hey, mom, you know the money you're missing? I took it. And she goes, Blessed art thou, my son. God bless you, kid. What is going on in there? Does this seem like a very healthy household? No. In fact, if you want to write down Proverbs 28, 24, here's what it says. Whoso robbeth father and mother and saith it is no transgression, the same is the companion of a destroyer. You know what one of Satan's names is in Revelation? Apollyon. You know what Apollyon means? Destroyer. This is exactly what this guy's doing here. Ah, it wasn't a sin. It's all good. We're going to see how much of a companion of a destroyer he is. Go ahead and finish verse 3, Carson. And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from, from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. <laughs> Now, therefore, I will it on <laughs> This house keeps getting crazier and crazier. She's saying, hey, that money you took, I had it set aside to give as an offering unto the Lord to break the second commandment by making a graven image in a false god. Hmm. Verse 4. Yeah, he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the founder, who made their own graven image and a molten and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a house of gods and made an ephod and a teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. You guys know what an ephod and a teraphim are? They are priestly garments. I'm not sure which of the ones it is, but I believe it's a teraphim? That was, yeah, the teraphim. It's stitched together of a blue and a red and a purple kind of etching. And they're very, very tight together. And it's almost like if you looked at it from afar, the stitching and the etching were so closely connected that it kind of almost had this blackly uh, kind of color. You know, like if you took a blue and a red and a purple crayon and just colored them all together, what are you going to get? Not going to get yellow. If you think that, go back to art class, please. That's what it is. It's like this black robe. And he consecrated it so that he could become a priest. All right, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own. What do you guys know when you hear the phrase those days? Who remembers from week one? Those days is synonymous with what? The end times. There was no king, and so everybody decided to do that which was right in their own eyes. They were wise in their own conceits. Verse 7. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. What was he? A Levite. 
a Levite. Those of you here in main service last Sunday, the Levites, they were the priest class of God. God was their inheritance. He's a priest. Keep reading. And he sojourned there. <laughs> and the man departed out of the city of Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. Hmm. He came to Mount Ephraim and to the house of Micah as he journeyed. He just got done with seminary school and now he's searching for a place. He's searching for his place in this world. And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said unto him, Oh, my lucky day, dwell with me and be unto me a what? A father and a priest. As we've already looked at, Matthew says, Call no man upon this earth your father. Those are Christ's words himself, context being religious in nature. This is religious in nature. And I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year and a suit of apparel. Now keep in mind, what does Micah have in his house right now? Graven images, false gods and icons that he got from robbing his mom and his mom blessing him for it. And here he finds a priest that says, hey, I will pay you your salary and I'll give you a brand new preacher suit. Come on and be my father and my priest so that I can worship properly. And the Levite was content, verse 11, to dwell with the man. And the young man, probably 17, 18 years old, has the world figured out, was unto him as one of his sons. Hmm. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. After everything that he just did in blatant sin, he honestly thinks that God's going to bless him. This is the state of Christianity today. This is what many people who call themselves Christians think is going to happen, that they can just do whatever they want and that there's not going to be a consequence for it. That God is somehow going to uh, commend and say good job for everything. We don't have time, but check out chapter 18 later on tonight. You know what happens? This guy, Micah, and this Levi pre priest, as they start worshiping, someone comes along and it's the tribe of Dan, a tribe of Israel. And they're like, hey, we need a priest. Let's go and take this priest by force. And we tell him, hey, is it better for you that you're a priest over this tiny little village or over an entire tribe? Be a leader to us. And so the Levite priest, he goes, and the Danites move to a town called Zidon, near the Zidonians. Why is that significant? Bear with me, I have a couple verses to skip through. 1 Kings 16.30 
And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife who? Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the who? Zidonians. And what happened here? And went and served who? And worshipped him. A tribe of the nation of Israel took this priest who then took Micah's gods and his false images and his priestly garment who was called a father and he went with the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Dan settled in Zidon who just so happens to be where Jezebel came from what? who was an enemy of the nation of Israel who slaughtered countless Israelites that which hath been is now. That which shall be hath already been. History repeats itself. Back on your outline. In the New Testament, Satan uses a figurative Jezebel to teach and seduce God's people away from Jesus to another Jesus. Satan is following the game plan, but he's renamed Baal to Jesus. What was pagan is now become Christian, so to speak. Ahab serves Baal. Jezebel leads Israel into apostasy. And she gets them all to worship Baal after the manner of her fathers, just like she did the nation of Dan. Number four, God's judgment upon her. Look at verse, flip back to Revelation 22. Oh, I hope you guys are seeing something in the Bible tonight. I hope these things cause you to look at the Bible and be like, wow, God wasn't messing around. He had all of these things ironed out in perfect detail, almost as though he knew it was going to happen. Yeah, because he's God. What were those two blanks? Uh, in the New Testament, Satan uses a figurative Jezebel. What was the, what was uh, Satan will follow the same game plan during the tribulation, sorry, and is setting the stage now for his final end game. What about... Satan used the, like, the Old Testament one. Oh, literal. Okay. My bad. Verse 22. Here's God's judgment upon her. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. He's going to cast her and her adulterers into tribulation if they continue to be unrepentant. And that's why this Jezebel woman, in this religious form, she shows up in the tribulation period. And all of those who follow her, instead of receiving the love of the gospel of Christ, man, that's why we got to warn people. Look at verse 23. Oh, boy. Oh, God, please speak to us tonight on this one. Verse 23, And I will kill her children with death. Isn't that an odd thing to say? That's really weird that that shows up in our Bible. Why would anyone say, I'm going to kill you with death? You imagine saying that? Like That kind of sounds gangster depending on the context of who you're saying it to. I'm going to kill you with death. 
I guess you just have to say it in the gangster context. Caleb, work on that this week and get back to me. <laughs> but it's kind of an odd statement, isn't it? It's kind of an odd phrase. Why say I'm going to kill her children with death? It's kind of redundant, right? Unless God is telling us of things before they happen, just like he said in Isaiah 45. Some of you may already know where I'm going with this. Second bullet point. He said he will kill her children with death. Do you think it's any coincidence that in 541 A.D., the Justinian plague brings about an introduction to the world, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, known everywhere to everyone as the Black Death. Yes, it started getting atrocious during the 1300s, and that's what it's mostly known for, but it started, it started with the Justinian Plague in 541 AD, this time frame we are studying. A couple notes on the Black Death, if you guys want to take more notes. Some records for the Justinian Plague say 25 to 39 million were dead by the age. It started the bubonic plague, otherwise known as Black Death. Why am I being redundant? I should have nixed those notes. Uh, there was a lot of paranoia surrounding it. Hello, 2020. <laughs> the most authoritative account as to the cause was found in a report to the king that it originated in a medical facility in Paris. Originated in a lab, you could say. That's the most authoritative account of what happened with the bubonic plague. When the king heard about this, he cursed the heavens, blamed it on the climate, blamed it on the environment. Public thought was that it was the Jews' fault, and unfortunately, it ramped up persecutions towards them. Many, however, believe that it started from trade ships going from Constantinople started from trade ships going from Constantinople down to... Anybody want to take a guess? Egypt. Boy, Egypt keeps coming up again and again in this study, and it's not good. I gave you guys this outline. No, I didn't. There it is. This is just a little bit of the breakout in the, what was the known world, what was the Holy Roman Empire. You guys have it on there. It shows you guys that it was mostly from the 1300s. But really, this kind of encapsulates the entirety of the entire plague. The entirety of the entire plague. Redundant much. I guess so. This is a, a chart that was done by the University of Iowa, so it's scholarly. You guys can see southern Spain... Northern uh, uh, France, <laughs> I don't know why that, I stumbled over that. Southern Spain, Northern France, Northern Italy, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Poland, some of those places, oh, and Bruges too, the Netherlands. They had very minor outbreak. I just thought that was very, very interesting. Back on your outline here. It's important to remember, don't worry, we're going to fly through this. Famous last words. There are some during this time that chose not to suffer, allow that woman Jezebel 
to know the depths of Satan. That's what he says in verse 24. Those that, that searched their hearts and that repented, they were taken care of. Again, God always has that faithful remnant. Some significant historical events during this period, some of which we already talked about, we're just going to touch on. But as a scattershot, the Roman Catholic Church officially removed the words of God from the common people and replaced the Bible's authority with the Roman Catholic Church institution or the catechisms. Remember Psalm 119, 130? The entrance of thy words giveth what? Light. If the entrance thereof is taken away, much like my Revelation page just fell out, if it's taken away, what do you have? Darkness. Therefore, almost everyone is duped into believing that the Roman Catholic Church is the one true church. Anyone that wouldn't align themselves with the Holy Roman Empire was snuffed out by force. More on that next week. For those of you historians in the room, you know where we're going. The Justinian and Bubonic Plague started in 541 AD. Go down to number three. Oh, this guy comes around at the same time. Mohammed. Motivated by the Roman Catholic Church's cruelty in the name of God. This is so huge. When you actually study Mohammed, and when you actually study what he did as a counterpoint to the Roman Catholic Church, it was all because of the atrocities he saw them doing to his people in the Middle East. Think about that. The hatred of Muslims today towards Christians didn't even start with genuine Christians. That's what religion gets you. Religion brings forth nothing but death. That's why Jesus Christ made it very, very clear that he was against religion. Religion put him on the cross. He just wants a relationship with you. He just wants to know you. Not about works, not about a religion. He said that he started his religion because he claimed to be visited by an angel, Gabriel. Uh, the first couple of times that happened, nobody else was around, by the way. He made that very clear. Number four. True preachers and Bible believers were, pure, were persecuted to the utmost. There are volumes of books, literally, I just showed you guys this the other night, volumes of books this thick of the atrocities that went on to people who believe the exact same things you and I do today. They didn't have a completed Bible. They preached from whatever they had. And they won many to Christ. They discipled many to carry on a biblical heritage. Here are some of their names. Cathari, Montanists, Novatians. Many of them, they took the names, they, they took the names of their, their leader. Donatists, Eukites, Messalines, Nestorians, Paulicians, Bogomiles, Albigenses, Picards. They would later be called Waldenses. Anabaptists to baptize again because many people were baptized at birth because of the Roman Empire. They needed to, and they didn't know what the Bible said, that no, water baptism comes after someone has consciously made the decision to follow Christ as Lord and Savior. So they would baptize again after that. That's how they got their name. And many of these names were given and attributed from their enemies. Anabaptist was not a positive name. It wasn't a name as in, oh, look at those guys. No, they were used it as a slang, as a slander term to them because they hated them. Mennonites, Hussites, brethren, and ultimately Baptists. No, Baptists are not the only way. They are not the only church. And in fact, there are a lot of stupid, dumb, ignorant Baptists that are out there. This is just the heritage of where the Baptist name comes from. 
some of these guys. Like the Albigenses. If you're taking notes, get a pen. You know what the Albigenses claimed? They claimed that authority alone comes from the scriptures, not from the Pope. That's what they believed. Because they had copies of scriptures and they believed it as it was in truth, the word of God, not the words of men. And it effectually worked in them. You know where they were active? Southern France, northern Spain, and northern Italy. That's where the Albigenses were active in their mission. That's where their land was. What about the Waldensians? They were founded by their man, Peter Waldo. Peter Waldo. He was a wealthy merchant in Lyon, France, and he became disgusted with Rome. He got saved by simply just reading his Bible by himself and doing what it said, calling upon the name of the Lord after believing that Jesus Christ died for his sins. At his own expense, he had the Bible translated into the people's language so that other people like him could read and could know what the Bible said so they could have the same riches and wealth that he did. He rejected the claim that people would be corrupted if they read the Bible for themselves, which was a known fact, quote-unquote, that was propagated by Rome during that time. That if you read the Bible, you're going to be corrupted. You're going to be brainwashed. That sounds familiar. I've heard that a few times from people who I love. He had a slogan. The Word of God speaks and we ought to obey it. Simple, but consider the stuff that was being taught back then. It wasn't so simple back then. His followers believed that the Bible was the final authority for all matters of faith and practice, and that every man should have a copy of it, and that it should be preached, believed, and obeyed. The, the, the Waldensians. Founder Peter Waldo. Where's Waldo? Where was he active? The Alpine region of Italy. You know where the Alpine region is of Italy? Right there, close by Milan. You know where else they were active at? Prague and Milan. What about the Hussites? Their leader, John Huss, he was a son of a peasant. Just a common, ordinary man. Just a common guy. He stated that not every priest is a saint, but man, every saint really is a priest. Talking biblically speaking, of course. He became a pastor where his ministry was supported by common people and the wife and the king. The king of, or the wife of the king, sorry. King of where, you might ask? Well, it was right where the Hussites were active in. Where were the Hussites active in? Modern day Czech Republic. Bohemia. What about the Bogomiles, the Paulicians, the Nestorians, and the Cathares? They were all active in northern Italy. See what's going on in northern Italy. Where were the Anabaptists at? Prague and Germany. That's where the Anabaptists were active in during this time. What about Mennonites and Anabaptists? The Netherlands. Look at your map. All of those places where all of those people were active in. What does it say about that area? Minor breakout. Are you ready for this? Verse 24. 
Man, this book is incredible. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, as many that have not bowed down, they haven't listened to the voice in their head. They didn't listen to the lies. They didn't listen to the persecution. They didn't compromise with the world. And they didn't let Satan have an inch. And which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. The burden of watching your family members die a horribly painful death by a plague that he just talked about in the previous verse. Plague stayed, or minor outbreak. Plague stayed, minor outbreak. Plague stayed, minor outbreak. Plague stayed, minor outbreak. Where God's people had God's words and they were reaching everyone they could. And they wouldn't give in to all the voices telling them to bow the knee, just give in, just surrender. I will put upon you none other burden. <sighs> just a coincidence. Man, God did this back then. We are this close to the end. What do you think he wants to do with this youth ministry? What does he want to do with you and your life? I want to see him work like this again. I want to see him do things in your lives individually that none of us can explain using human intellect. Things that don't make any sense at all, but by the grace of God. Correction. Don't you love it? Even if we do bow in and start listening to all these voices, God's so gentle when He corrects us. First bullet point, He says, Stay away from the doctrine of Balaam and Jezebel and the depths of Satan. Listen to the right voices, in other words. Second bullet point, look at verse 25. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. So Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I believe it's verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words. Hold fast to what you have until Christ comes. Do what you know to do, and He'll be with you. You'll be okay. And last bullet point, look at verse 26. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter shall they be broken to shivers do you want to see holy cow didn't I just mention that today in the group meet chat Psalm 2 someone look up Psalm 2 didn't it say that about, about vessels being broken Psalm 2 8 through 9 you going to read it oh, I, you just said look I can read it Who's got it? I've got it. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces. Ooh, wasn't planned. I completely forgot that verse was in there. I just read Psalm 2 as a part of my devotions today. Oh, God, you're freaking me out. Even as I received of my Father... Hey, we want to see vessels broken. 
We want to see people come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're broken in their sin. They realize their need for a Savior. Don't bow the knee. Don't give in. Don't listen to the wrong voices. Verse 28, And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says in the churches. On your outline, overcome and keep Christ's work unto the end. Christ says that we will be given power over the nations. You're going to see that come fulfilled here in about two weeks' time. To rule the nations with a rod of iron. They were authoritative and will be given the morning star. Also prophetic, something we'll see next week by a very infamous man in church history who would be known as the son of the morning star. We're going to see why in just one week. The application. Who or what are you anchored to? You'll find out when the storms of persecution come and they will come who are you anchored to when you start hearing these voices to start drifting? What precious promises in 2 Peter 1 are you clinging to? Are you adding to your faith so that you're not going to end up blind? This is no ordinary book. I hope you guys saw that tonight. Let's pray.